0: Ethical hacking in the tech world is incredibly important as it allows you to find the holes in your system and patch them before bad people can get in and do, obviously, bad things. Dr. Bruce Schneier proposes that we should have the same mindset when approaching the legal system and new laws. Dr. Schneier is an internationally renowned security technologist called a security guru by The Economist. He is the New York Times best-selling author of 14 books, including Click Here to Kill Everybody, as well as hundreds of articles, essays, and academic papers. His influential newsletter, Cryptogram, and blog, Schneier on Security, are read by over 250,000 people. Dr. Schneier is a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, a board member of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Access Now, and an advisory board member of EPIC and VerifiedVoting.org. He is the chief of security architecture at InRept, Inc., And with that, I am Taylor Bledsoe, and this is the Aiming for the Moon podcast, where I interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. If you like what you hear today, please rate the podcast and subscribe. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter and now Facebook at AimingTheNumber4Moon. And you can check out our website, AimingForTheMoon.com, for links to our merchandise, my Lessons from the Interesting People newsletter, and other episodes and bios of our guests. Feel free to check out my other meanderings at com. And with that, thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So you are what you call yourself a public interest technologist. Before we begin our discussion, I kind of want to just define that term really briefly.
1: So I think of it as someone who bridges tech and policy. You know, it's easy to be a techie and know all about computers and programming, and it's easy to know about government and policy, but the real problems combine those two. And I definitely think the real problems of this century Will whether it's climate change or robotics, driverless cars, future of work, biology, will combine tech and policy. and And you know how lousy legislators are at tech. And, and so I think of myself as someone who bridges that gap. And I think we need a lot more of people like me who bridge that gap.
0: The thing that I've heard people say before, political commentators and other news people, one of the problems with legislating technology and stuff like that is, well, the first thing is it improves very quickly and the circumstances of it change very quickly. So if you're not in the area of tech, then it's kind of hard to keep up. And especially if you're doing all the legislative stuff. Then number two, if you look at people in Congress and people who are Senate, they're in the Senate, they are in an older generation, so they might not understand Tech as much, so you have people in their seventies and eighties in some of the um, in some of the cases, who oh, for the vast majority don't know how to download apps, let alone the uh, data and stuff like that. How do oh, you- some of them don't even know how
1: to read their email? It's really bad.
0: Yeah, I'm like so. How do you? How should we approach this problem? Is there like how do you legislate tech? Should we legislate tech? What's what's the idea? What what should we do?
1: Well, we have to legislate tech because it could do really bad things if we don't. So this is actually, isn't a new problem. For centuries, people in charge of government have been making on policy in areas they don't have expertise in. Like maybe they don't know about agriculture or they don't know about cars or they don't know about nuclear energy or airplanes or food and drugs or whatever. So we have a system by which hopefully Lawmakers get expertise on their staffs and listen to those experts. Uh, This is hard. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, there was a senator in the United States, Mark Zuckerberg is at a hearing, and the senator asks Mark Zuckerberg, how does Facebook make money? Now, that's embarrassing that he didn't know that Facebook makes money selling ads, You're right that tech is moving faster than it ever has. And I think that's a real challenge. Tech moves faster than laws. You look at companies like, oh, I don't know, Uber, that will run rings around regulations because they're just more agile than lawmakers. We need to figure this out. I don't have an answer, but I think this is an important problem. We need to figure out how policy can move at the speed of tech because we can't have Tech doing whatever they want and policy just chasing it. Because I think that's a recipe for disaster. I remember this with drones. We were told for years that you shouldn't regulate drones because it's too early. And if you did that, you'd kill this nascent industry. And then suddenly everyone gets one for Christmas. And then it's now too late to regulate drones because they're everywhere. Well, when is the right time? We need to figure that out. And we are not good at this.
0: The other interesting part about it. Is so, you talk about hacking society, um, hacking society, and then adapting, almost putting a hacker mentality or a programmer mentality to policies and these issues. Can you kind of explain that to people, especially people who are interested in tech? Like I'm interested in programming and stuff like that. So can you kind of propose your idea? All right. So you know about hacking, right? In
1: hacking, we look at computer code, we find bugs, we find vulnerabilities, we exploit them to do something tricky, something that the programmer didn't intend. So let's imagine the tax code, right? It's not computer code, but it's a bunch of algorithms. It has inputs, it has outputs, it has rules. Those rules have bugs. There are some of those bugs or vulnerabilities. We call those vulnerabilities tax loopholes. There are exploits. We call them tax avoidance strategies. And there are black hat hackers who Figure out how to exploit those vulnerabilities. We call them accountants. So there really is a parallel between computer code and the tax code. So what I'm imagining is that any systems of rules can be approached in this manner. It could be the laws by which taxis are regulated. That Uber looks attorneys at Uber look for vulnerabilities that they can exploit. It could be the rules of uh, uh, in a sports game which players look for an advantage. And there are great examples of, of hacking sports. There could be systems of rules for, uh, for trading in, in an economic system. All these systems of rules will have vulnerabilities. And especially now, people are paid to find exploits and to profit from them. And I think it's it's turning out to be bad for society. So my hope is this way of thinking about systems will be useful in figuring out how to defend against this.
0: So, okay, how would we do this practically? So there's one thing when it comes to the mindset. The mindset's very interesting. But if we were going to analyze a new law, for example, how wh- how would you go about debugging to use programmer language a law?
1: So I think it's the same way we do it with real code. We would look at it from the point of view of the attacker. Right, so if I'm debugging code, I'm just looking at performance, how well it works. And if I'm doing a security analysis of code, I'm looking at how it fails. I'm looking for the mistakes. I'm looking for the things you forgot to check for. And we could look at laws the same way. You know, We could take a proposed bill and imagine how someone might exploit it. Doesn't mean it'll get fixed, right? There's our lobbyists. There's all sorts of competing interests when it comes to lawmaking. It's not like Microsoft that just wants to have code that works. You have like, lots of people battling over what works even means in, in a law. But it doesn't mean that we'll know about the vulnerabilities. It means that we'll be aware then they'll enter the political debate. It's not a solution, but it's a partly one. We can imagine uh, an AI program doing this. Right? Already, there are AI programs that can look for vulnerabilities in computer code. They're not very good at it. They're going to get better over the years. We can imagine a computer program looking for vulnerabilities in a new tax law. You know, how would it interact with other tax laws? Are there any loopholes? Can we find them? Can we close them before they're taken advantage of? You know, it's not a perfect solution, but it is what we've got.
0: The other interesting thing about it is, so it's not just the laws themselves that need debugging it's also the institution. So one of the hardest things about you know, passing laws and making everything kind of work on time is that it gets slowed down by a lot of other things going on. Like everyone has to have their look over it, which is good because it balances power. But at the same time, for tech, for example, if you legislate tech, by the time it sometimes gets through all of Congress and everything else and all of the other you know, checks and balances, there are problems with the rate at which you can get laws out and the rate at which tech increases it's, it seems a little bit like is there so we're, o-
1: mm-hmm. we're okay with that when the results are catastrophic so it takes many years for a new drug to get on the market because a bad drug will kill people it takes many years for a new aircraft design to fly because a bad design crashes and people die you know, in areas where bad tech can do damage we accept a slowdown for safety and security. Traditionally, computers have been exempt from that because it kind of didn't matter. It was like you know, you—it's the internet. You're talking about Star Trek on, on on some message board. You're sending email to your friends, and that's changing, right? There's now software in cars that's controlling the car. Facebook turns out can affect the national election. There are. The effects of computers are now kind of like the effects of of other critical things in our society. So we do make that trade off. And yes, uh, regulation, getting approvals, permissions, right? I mean, you know, right? The drugs are permission based. You can't do it unless you're explicitly allowed to, as opposed to something that's rights based, where you can do it unless you're told not to. We moved to, to permissions based. When it is getting dangerous, and software is about to cross that line, that you know we are seeing. I have a friend who's swallowing a camera uh, next week. She has a problem with her digestive system, and there's a camera in pill form, and you swallow it, and there's a you know wireless connection, and someone's going to watch it go through her gut. Now that's software, we want to be accurate. The software controls an insulin pump that's automatically dispensing insulin. You get it wrong, it could kill you. So these applications are moving into the area where we're going to accept this slower world, where things won't move as fast. It's less fun. I like getting new apps on my phone every month. I I like the free-for-all of everything is possible, and no one can say what I can't do. But we might be near the end of that in our society because of how pervasive computers have become.
0: But doesn't that also slow down innovation? So the thing about that is during the early stages of the Internet, one of the things that made it accelerate is that there's so much cross-pollination and so much innovation happening, and there's not as much regulation. Now, of course, when you get into technologies where, like, the brakes on your car, if somebody types the wrong line of code and your car doesn't stop, and that's a serious problem. But is it, would that be a negative effect on innovation, and would that be worth it? Like, how yeah. exactly would that balance?
1: Well, yeah. uh, my answer is, if, if people don't die, yes, it's worth it. But we actually don't know if it slows, if it slows down innovation. There's a lot of innovation in pharmaceuticals. There's an enormous amount of money, startups, new ideas, new drugs, new treatments every year. It is an enormous growth space even though it's heavily regulated. So maybe not. I mean, certainly the experimental aircraft industry isn't very robust because it's dangerous. It's really hard to get licenses to do things. But is there less innovation in aircraft? I don't know. Probably not. It's different. And yes, I mean, the cross-fertilization, the generativity, that's all great stuff. And maybe we have two tiers of internet, the you know one with the important stuff, which is heavily regulated, and one which is the fun apps in your iPhone, which is you know anyone can do whatever they want. And maybe that's going to be an answer, but we are going to need to think about it. If computers are going to drive our cars around, we really don't want them to crash into each other.
0: Of course, that would be that. That's definitely with the stuff when it involves safety. The regulation I think is very much needed because obviously you don't want someone to get off with a hundred dollar fine every time there's a car crash or something like that. That would be a yeah, that would be bad. That would be a really, really bad problem. Obviously,
1: but that and, and that's computers moving into our world. When they're just on our screens, when computers are screens and keyboards, you only really have to deal with problems with data. When computers affect our world in a direct physical manner, when they're cars and planes and medical devices and home appliances, you know, then security becomes safety. And now we have to worry about, you know, I guess if my someone hacks my refrigerator, they can spoil my food and I lose some money. Maybe that's not terrible. But you know, we've seen high voltage transformers hacked and basically hacked to explode and that's not good we don't want we don't want exploding transformers
0: the other thing is in the beginning stages of the internet there was kind of this decentralization of authority so everyone that was one of the ways that innovation happened um another one of yeah one of the many reasons that there was such a boom there the thing now is that people kind of look at the internet and it's like well, this is interesting. There is like three or four main companies. You have Amazon, Google, and some of these other ones that are all doing great things for their, well, most of the stuff they do is very good for their consumers. They they provide great services like Amazon gives me books in two days, which is great and helpful. But also there's this monopoly kind of thing that seems to be happening. Is this a problem? Is this, should we try to get rid of this? What, how should we approach this? Is this good for our, our economy and for the environment and innovation or what's going on there?
1: I think it's actually the worst thing that's happening. I think the rise of the tech monopolies are our biggest problem. The single uh, most beneficial thing we can do for our future is to break up the tech monopolies. And a whole lot of reasons for this. Uh, they they control the internet, uh, not for your benefit, but for theirs. Uh, they're so profitable, they turn their profits into policy that enables them to make more profits. And they stifle competition, which stifles innovation. Amazon doesn't have to get any better because they're just so big. And anybody that tries to do something better, they can just buy. So it's Amazon, it's Facebook, it's Apple, it's Microsoft, it's Google. The fact that they do so many things and control so much of the internet is a huge problem. And we would do much better with hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of smaller companies. I, mean, I think it's the way to save social media. Instead of just Facebook, there's a thousand Facebooks that are all interoperable. I mean, the neat thing about email is it doesn't matter what email client you have, what I have, I can send you email. But if you're not using the same message app that I am, I can't send you a message. So I want messaging to look more like email. I don't want there to be a single social media platform. I want it to look more like I know, maybe a decade ago when you had blogs and RSS readers, that your RSS reader will read everybody's blog. Why can't social media be that way? There'll be lots of different sites to post, lots of different readers, and it's all interoperable. So uh, distributed systems, interoperable systems, this is by far a better future. It's one that all the monopolies will fight and they have a lot of money to fight it. I mean right now there's a bill in Congress trying to get Apple to open up their app Store. And that's being fought, like, a lot because the App Store is incredibly profitable for Apple. And having a monopoly means they can charge 30% of any app sold to your iPhone. You know, if there there was competition, they couldn't make 30%. And they like their 30%.
0: The other thing that people often raise when it comes to big tech is this idea of so-called surveillance capitalism. So, of course, you have these companies and they provide you, for the most part, at the current state, um, it's, it seems to be fairly good service. You have Amazon, of course, giving you packages within two days, three days. Super, super close. And then you have Instagram, Twitter, and all the other ones giving you ads that, for the most part, it's, it's seen, well, really, for a lot of the part, seem creepily accurate to what you were thinking about at that moment. And the thing people always wondered about are, are they listening to us? which is an interesting mindset for consumers to be in. It almost feels like in the current economy, people almost feel victimized by the services that they're using, which is kind of an interesting mindset for something that you're choosing to be a part of. Are we choosing to be a part of it? What do you think about that?
1: I mean, it's hard. I mean, we're choosing and we're not choosing. The problem with these is they're they're monopolies, that you can choose not to get stuff from Amazon, but it's actually really hard. I try to insert at least one store between me and Amazon, but it's often more expensive and more annoying and takes longer. So I default to Amazon. If you're not on Facebook, you're probably not getting invited to parties, or Instagram, whatever you kids are using these days. But you know, it, these are choices, but they're not really choices because to be a full-fledged member of the 21st century world, you need to use these monopolies. Uh, there's a tech reporter that tried to turn off Google and not use any Google anything and found that huge number of things broke. You couldn't even use Uber because Uber relies on Google. I mean, it, it's just so many things break. So we're choosing and not choosing. It really is a false choice. And if you use the word victimized, I think that's pretty accurate. You know, we are being spied upon. These people, these companies make their living spying on you in an effort to manipulate you. That's the business model. Google is trying to get you to buy things you wouldn't otherwise buy. So is Facebook. Now, this is surveillance capitalism, right? Because we're not paying with money. We're paying with our data, which is being used to manipulate us. Uh, I think this is uh, an immoral business model. Uh, Shoshana Zuboff wrote very eloquently about it in her book, The Rise of Surveillance Capitalism. I have a book called Data and Goliath that makes much the same points. Uh, My guess is something that this will be heavily regulated in a decade or two, but not yet because there's so much money and power. And uh, a lot of government surveillance piggybacks on corporate surveillance. So yeah, this is, I think, something worth thinking about. This is something your generation have to fix because ours is going to fail at it. But I think it is something we are going to have to fix, this notion that your intimate secrets, and they are your intimate secrets. You You never lie to your search engine. It knows everything you fear and hope and dream because that's how you get information. The fact that that information can be collected and stored and used to influence you is is a powerful thing. And I don't know if we want to give a company that authority.
0: It's, it's really creepy and we're running out of time here, but I want to ask one last question in in order to not end on such a bleak note, basically. So, You talk about our generation being able to do things. What are steps that my generation can take? Should we try to get involved in programming and teaching ourselves programming languages? How exactly are what are the steps that we should take in order to educate ourselves and in order to change some of the problems in tech and policy now?
1: I mean, some of it will happen naturally. I I mean, remember how you started when you talked about the legislators being so old, they don't know how to download apps. I think being a digital native will make an enormous difference. When people who understand tech intimately are involved in policy making, they will just do a better job. And yes, the tech will be different, but younger generations are used to evolving tech and things changing every few years in a way that you know my parents are completely uh, unable to cope with. And, and so, so I think a lot of it happens naturally. So whether you go into tech or go into policy or go into something in the humanities, it's all going to to come together. So I don't think there is a path that I'm going to push anybody towards. Just I'm going to tell people to find their path because all paths will be necessary. I tend to like generalists. I like people who can bridge different disciplines. I think the interesting stuff happens between disciplines and not in the core. That's me. But we need people who go deep into the core on one topic and they're boring about everything else in the world. So we need everybody.
0: So, ending our discussion now and focusing on the last two questions that we ask all of our guests, what books have had an impact on you?
1: You know, I think science fiction has the most impact on me. And I hesitate to recommend a book in particular because. Science fiction is actually not about the future. It's always about the present. And it's the present day science fiction that allows us to explore how the present interacts with potential futures and how to think about society in different ways. So I'm a big fan of reading, uh, science fiction. And there's great stuff out there that, that looks at, uh, either Climate disaster societies. There's a a new branch, right, which I think of as sort of climate change optimistic. The series of books of climate change happened and we solved it, or we are solving it. Lets us imagine better futures. Thinking about how AI might be integrated in our in our world. How might we deal with non-human intelligences? Science fiction explores these things. I think in really useful ways. And for me, that was really valuable. That taught me how to think about the world in a more sense of of possibilities than what we're stuck with.
0: Some of my favorite books in that are Ender's Game, and then you have Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which isn't as much sci-fi, but it is a really good book that involves space.
1: Okay, that influenced me a lot. I was in high school when the radio show came out. I got the BBC radio show on cassette tape from a friend's friend
0: in the UK.
1: And yes, that basically changed it, my It's life. an
0: incredible series that I recommend to anyone. And our last question now is, what advice do you have for teenagers?
1: So you gave me this question before we started, and, and I've been thinking about it. and I have three pieces of advice, and they're very general because that's the way I think. The first is to understand the system. The world is full of systems. Some of them are are legal and written down. Some of them are social and unwritten. But understand the systems you're you're in. The second is to break the rules. Systems have rules, again, written or unwritten, formal or informal. And sometimes you have to break them. And the third is to change the game. Systems are constraining, sometimes in ways that are bad. And the way we get real change is to actually change the game. Those are my three pieces of advice. That's very
0: interesting. That seems like a way, it almost sounds like a programming way of thinking about the world, like thinking about, well, how do we innovate and how do we change and and evolve our projects? It seemed that when I was thinking about it, it reminded me of how I go about writing algorithms or something like that. It seemed very interesting.
1: Yeah, it's it's a kind of a hacker way of thinking of the world.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Schneier, for coming on. It was an awesome interview. Thank you. This was fun. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Hopefully, all of you guys enjoyed it. If you liked it, please rate and subscribe to the podcast. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Number 4 moon if you go to our website, aimingforthemoon.com, you can find links to our merch, the Lessons from Interesting People newsletter, and other episodes and bios of our guests. And yeah, if you want to see any of my other meanderings, go to taylorgledso.com And with that, again, thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to set your sights high and aim for the moon.